Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, longtime friend, uh, former uh, founder of Grove and now at Wealthfront, uh, Chris Hutchins. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Doing a little bit differently this time. Exactly. So, so Chris, you're one of the most uh, financially savvy uh, and optimizing people I know. So that when, when you started Grove, I knew I had to had to invest. Why don't you describe what what Grove was, uh, what you what you uh, did there, what you're trying to do there, and uh, how, your trace your journey a little bit, and how you ended up partnering with with Wealth Fund. Yeah. So you know, I started Grove when I was a entrepreneur in residence at Google Ventures. And as you mentioned, I'm like a huge financial nerd, right? Like uh, I, I tried to trace this back to some sort of history. And I think it was just like, I, I went to a, a school where other kids had more money than I did. And, and not that I didn't have any, but you know, they had a lot more. And so I always had to find a, a hack to get more money. So I would order, you know, Domino's pizza to, I went to boarding school. I'd order Domino's pizza and like sell slices so that I could get two slices for free. And uh, I've just kind of always had this mindset of, want to have find ways to get more with spending less. And through that process, I started really understanding things in the investment market and the financial planning world and realized that no, most people don't have that same obsession I do. Uh, and in fact, thinking about this kind of stuff stresses them out more than it excites them. And so Grove was really started as a way to help people deal with financial planning uh, in a way, way less stress environment. And so we had a team of financial planners and we built a bunch of software to make it much more affordable to work with financial planners to kind of put together a financial plan. Uh, you'd sync all your accounts and we'd kind of help forecast the future and tell you what you need to do. And why don't you talk a little bit about when we talk about wealth management, the industry, you know, what are we talking about exactly? You know, people think uh, Charles Schwab, people think Vanguard. Now people think, uh, you know, Betterment and Wealthfront. Why don't you sort of give, uh, as you sort of went deep in sort of the industry, uh, just sort of uh, paint, paint a bit of an overview. Yeah. So historically, right, the industry was entirely kind of managed by these large firms where, where you had a guy and, you know, he, you know, he would pick stocks for you and, and take care of your portfolio. And, and almost all of them would either charge you in one of two ways. They'd charge you a percent of all your assets or and, and while that seems like the worst one, uh, it's much better than the alternative, which is some people would charge you to they would just make money selling you things. So they'd be like, I've got this this hot mutual fund, you should, you should get involved. It's great. And they would make a huge kickback when they referred you to that mutual fund. And what happened is, uh, you know, as technology enabled people to compete with all of these big firms online, you could really democratize access to that. So, you know, I think one of the, the mission statement of Wealthfront uh, is, is, you know, to democratize access to sophisticated financial products. And that's, that's kind of what we've been focused on. And an interesting conversation we're having at the company now is like, that's kind of happened. Like we've kind of succeeded in that mission we created 10 years ago. 
and by we, I mean, I've only been there six or eight months, so I give so much more credit to the team that's been doing it for a decade. Um, and, and we've been able to offer some of those products to other people. So you don't need to pay someone 1% to manage a bunch of mutual funds because now, you know, companies like Vanguard make it possible for you to get access to them yourselves and not pay any management fee. And, you know, companies like Wealthfront allow you to get access to uh, a service that will manage the rebalancing and the tax loss harvesting and some of the other kind of things that you would want to do with that portfolio that a lot of people don't want to do on their own. Uh, and so now software has basically enabled that to happen. And, you know, people can have something that's fast and convenient and affordable. And, and talk about where you're working on at Wealthfront and how you you think you can you can make an impact there, and and then where you see you mentioned the company you know the conversation you guys are having now, where, where you see the company going in terms of hey you, you've achieved that mission, what's uh what's next or what products do you continue to to offer? Yeah, so I think you know we had this thing where it was like well now they're the products and now you can access them, and, and what's next? And the future of that is a, a vision we're focused on that that's kind of squarely something that I'm working on called self driving money. So we think money should be automated. Uh, we should earn you the most and help you meet your goals. And it should kind of all be optimized and you should not have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And as we talk to people, both our clients and not, uh, what, we, what we've learned is that people don't like spending all of this time thinking about money. And so if you can take some of that burden off of their shoulders, you can you know, allow them to both be happier and, and have more free time for things they care about uh, a whole lot more. So one of the things that, if, how does that look like, right? Like you, I could talk about it in this grandiose way. What that practically means is, imagine you could just direct your deposit your paycheck into an account, and that we understand how much you need for spending and savings, and so we can leave enough there so that you can pay your bills, um, you can have an emergency fund, and then we can kind of automatically put the rest to work for you. So that's uh, we know that you're trying to save for your kid's college. We know that you're trying to save for retirement and you're trying to save to buy a house and you need a down payment so we can you know, split up the extra cash you have each month, leaving enough to pay your bills and, and put it wherever it makes the most sense right now. And that will evolve over time. Once you bought that house, we're no longer saving for the down payment. Maybe we can shift some of that savings towards the education for your kids or your retirement. And you can kind of not have to worry about it because it's kind of going on in the background. We don't think you should never see it. So we put the controls in the client, but we want to make sure that they don't have to do all the work. Say more about where is money, if, if at all, self-driving today? And, or, and where does it need to, need to be self-driving where it's, where it's not self-driving? Or what are the biggest bottlenecks uh, to, to it being, or what are the biggest challenges for, for the, this to be a reality? Yeah, so I think one thing that's been great is you've seen a lot of the independent products self-drive. So, you know, if you look at an investment portfolio, historically you had to, you know, either a human, which is, you know, kind of historically the industry would buy a bunch of index funds or stocks and periodically rebalance them as the market changed or if some of them were down, they would sell them to capture some of those losses to be able to, you know, reduce your tax burden. And we've kind of seen through the robo advisor movement the automation of that part of the industry. So the investment portfolio has now been kind of automated and self-drives itself. Um, you know, bank accounts, which used to pay no interest, uh, and you know, you basically had to go invest to earn some sort of return on really liquid investments like cash. You know, we now have an abundance of you know high yield savings and cash accounts that pay high interest. There's still a lot of evolution uh, on the lending side that needs to happen. Um, you know, I'm right now refinancing our mortgage and, you know, we physically had to have someone come to our house to look at it. 
And, you know, I've probably signed 30 documents so far. And by the way, I'm refinancing it with the exact same bank that already has the mortgage. So they already, you know, they've already inspected the house. So there's just a lot of stuff regarding lending that it still requires, you know, ink signatures and people to visit the property and lots of documents to be signed. And so, you know, each individual product still needs some work. Um, but I think one of the big things is the way those products work together. Being able to have a sophisticated enough, you know, kind of engine to understand someone's finances, understand what's going on in all their accounts, how much they're spending so that you can make the right decisions, allocating money between them. And that's something that, you know, we've been working on for years and, and I think is a, a prerequisite that, you know, hasn't existed historically because no one's had the full picture. So companies like Plaid and Yodli that allow you to link your accounts and collect and aggregate all your financial data, those things, uh, you know, make it easier now. And, and, and talk about uh, access a bit. So what, what percentage of the population has access to, to some of these tools that, that, that we've been talking about or, or just great wealth management uh, advice in, in general? And um, as for people who are building businesses or as you think about it at Wealthfront, how do you think about sort of serving the, the top or serving everyone else when there's, there's so much money at the top, but there's also you know, so much uh, people uh, in, that haven't been served yet? Yeah. So, I mean, a prerequisite for anyone to need a wealth management service or even like an investment management service is that they have to have money to, you know, invest or they have to have wealth. Right. So, you know, I think you can really separate the market into products that help people figure out what to do with the money they're saving and products that help people figure out how to save more money. So there's lots of budgeting tools. You know, Mint was one, YNAB's one. Um, that are really out there to try to help people figure out how to budget. Then there's tools like Digit um, that are automating your savings and helping you figure out how to start to get enough of a, you know, a nest egg, if you will, to start to think about investing, but kind of in the pre-investing space. That space is all heating up, interestingly, because technology has let companies like Chime get started and, you know, let people get their paycheck two days early. And so you can kind of split the market into people who are, trying to get to that point that they're saving and investing and then people that already, you know, are saving. And so for the people who already are saving, you know, that's where all these investment services and products come in. And, you know, for the most part, you know, the minimums on accounts at Vanguard or even Wealthfront are, are very small. You know, you can open up an investment account with us with $500. You can open up a cash account with $1. So, you know, we, you don't need to have a lot of money to use a lot of these products now that software is kind of made the operation of those products so efficient. Totally. How do we make sense of passive versus active uh, investing? Maybe you can def define it for those who aren't super familiar and think, then talk about how, how that's evolved. And especially now in, in the times of, of COVID, uh, whether that volatility uh, changes anything. Yeah. So historically, active investing is just picking you know, a strategy and passive investing is picking the market. So, you know, an active investor would say, oh, I think I know what's going to happen with oil prices. So I'm going to, you know, move, shift your money into oil. And I, and I know what's going to happen with the travel industry. Uh, so I'm going to put your money there. And then passive investors would say, no, actually, we're just going to buy an index fund or an ETF or a mutual fund of the market. And we're just going to bet on the market. And I think if anything that we've seen recently, you know, with everything that's happening with coronavirus around the world, like, Never has it been harder to understand what the market is doing, right? The, no one would have predicted that airline stocks would have dropped like they, had, they have three months ago. Uh, oil price dipping, you know, negative this, this week, like no one would have thought that was happening. So I think 
I, I was listening to an interesting uh, podcast called Animal Spirits about, uh, you know, really deep dive into finance and investing. And they're like, never has the argument for passive investing been stronger is what they were saying that, you know, no one seems to know what's going to happen. And even people who are in this industry day in and out are wondering, okay, well, we don't know if tomorrow the market's going to go up, the market's going to go down, one sector is going to go up, one sector is going to go down. And so the way I personally invest and the strategy that Wealthfront you know, supports is one of investing passively. Now, separate from all that's happening in the market today, there's also been an abundance of research to show that passive investors in aggregate outperform active investors net of fees, which is a, another great support reason for supporting passive investors is that it historically has done better, uh, which means more returns, which means you know earlier retirement or better lifestyle or all that kind of stuff. So what you're saying is I should put 50% of my net worth in Bitcoin. That's what you're, that's what you're saying. So I would never make a specific recommendation like that. Uh, you know, uh, but you know, something like Bitcoin is interesting because it's a very, very volatile thing. I don't think anyone could tell you with any certainty what will happen and, and how, to, how to time it. So when you think about a portfolio allocation, uh, you know, you try to think, what's this money for? And if this money is for something that you need, you want to reduce the volatility because you want to make sure that you have it when you need it. Uh, so assets, so that's where diversification comes in. You buy lots of different things. The more data you have about how something might perform, the more you can you know, infer how it might perform in the future and how it performs relative to other things. So we have you know, a century of data on how bonds compare to real estate, compare to the stock market. And we have, you know, maybe a decade on cryptocurrency and that decade is not very explainable uh and so you know what we've told what we told people at grove was look we're not telling you not to do things right if you think you really want to do this we're just saying that if this money is for something really important the majority of it should be somewhere where we have a pretty good indication of what will happen to it uh so we could plan on it uh at least based on how it has had happened historically so we'd say maybe try to keep the amount of your portfolio that you invest in kind of you know, non-traditional or more risky assets down in the like 5% range. So if you had $100,000, you could maybe take 5,000 and, you know, invest in things you're really excited about and try to, you know, do things like that and take 95% of it and put it in something that, you know, seems to have a more, you know, not predictable because the past never, you know, predicts the future, but at least a, a future that we feel like we have a better understanding of what might happen based on what's happened in the past. Yeah. What are other sort of uh, non-obvious portfolio uh, allocation mistakes that that people make when, when dealing with their own money? You know, obviously it's you know uh, too much money in, in something that's it's too risky or not diversifying sufficiently. What are things that people should be make sure uh, that they're ensure that they're thinking about that that maybe might not be top of mind for them? Uh, I think one is just you know making sure that as circumstances change. Uh, you're reacting. So if you had a portfolio right now, well, right now is maybe not the best example because the entire market has been really unpredictable. But a lot, you know, historically bonds and stocks are, you know, not correlated. And so if the stock market's up 30%, the bond market might not be. If you had a portfolio that you decided should have been 70% stocks and 30% bonds, and the stock market's up 30%, you're probably not at that target that you intended. So it might be a good time to rebalance. I think some of the things people maybe take for granted of being things that are easy, but require you to just monitor things like rebalancing and tax loss harvesting. And so, you know, those are things that you can do yourself. You know, I remember the first time I saw Wealthfront, I was like, oh, they tell everyone what the portfolio is. And 
I wonder, you know, couldn't someone just implement this? If you look at the FAQs, it's like, yeah, you could go do this. Like, we're not charging you because we picked the best portfolio. The service we provide is that we're going to regularly rebalance and regularly tax loss harvest. So you don't have to log in and figure out what to do and make those trades yourselves and reinvest the dividends in the right way and all that. So just maintaining your portfolio, I think, is something that that's the summary answer there is, you know, you could pick what you want to invest in. But as your portfolio changes, as you have more money, uh, you need to make sure you maintain the portfolio you picked. Um, the obvious one happening uh, today in the markets that everyone's talking about is, you know, selling when the market is low and buying when the market is high is the kind of the opposite of what you want to do. So if if you're scared, uh, you know, that's not the best time to sell everything because, you know, historically markets have recovered. And I, I wish I could remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it was something like, you know, seven or 10 of the best uh, days of the year make up almost all of the return. And so, you know, you don't want to miss out on those days. And so the strategy that, you know, I Wealthfront and, you know, a lot of people, you know, in the industry recommend is, you know, if this money is for the long run, you know, you invest and you hold and, um, you know, you're not trying to play effectively trying to sell when you think the market's going to crash. That That is active investing. It's just, you know, actively investing in, in certain index funds. So those are a few of them. Um, so for me, it's, you know, Someone asked, should you change your strategy? I'm like, no, like I'm continuing to put money into uh, my investment account just like I had before. And do you, so do you think that the tide is shifting uh, to more passive investing culturally? Do you think people will be, become more humble after this or, or is that unlikely to happen? Yeah, I, I don't have all the stats, but my understanding from you know, the last month or month and a half of what's going on in the market that the kind of consumer panic selling has got is lower than some people expected, uh, at least from you know listening to a bunch of other podcasts. And so, you know, that would imply that people are like, you know, sticking it out, uh, which is great. That's not to say no one's doing that. There's certainly plenty of people who who panic sold in this market. And you know, the the first big drop that we've seen has recovered, not entirely, but quite significantly for how quickly it dropped. And um, you know, if you sold at the bottom of that first 30% drop and then the market went back up 20%, like you missed out on that. And obviously if you could have sold before it all, it would have been great, but no one, no one knew what was going to happen. So you know, it's really hard to do that. What's broken in financial planning uh, today or what's been, and how much of it is the technology versus sort of consumer behavior and, and how much can technology solve or what, what can technology not solve? And it really has to be sort of consumers changing first, first and foremost. I'm curious how you've been spaced for a few years, how you thought about that? Yeah, one of the interesting things we kind of learned at Grove that, you know, parlayed really well to Wealthfront is that, you know, people have this interesting, like humans as financial advisors and financial planners have a, an interesting role to play. Certainly on the high end, people want to just have someone to manage their finances. And so let's put them aside. But what role do kind of financial advisors have for, for kind of more mass market circumstances? And you know, it's what I find interesting is a lot of what the humans have done and what what value people put on them, like, oh, they can figure out the plan. Software is really good at a lot of that stuff. Software is not really good at helping people understand their emotions uh, and, and kind of make decisions that are difficult. And so you see a lot of like content taking over the role of kind of human, you know, communication and therapy and comfort. And then the software, but the software has actually taken over the role of like the projections and the modeling that happened, you know, years ago. And so one of the things we found at Grove was that it was just really, you know, the, the cost you have to charge for a service that's powered by humans 
is high. And, you know, as much value as I think financial planning provides people in the long run, that value, you know, is still hard for people to understand enough to pay what it costs to have a, you know, a personal human, you know, financial planner and financial advisor. And so if you want to make these kinds of things accessible to the mass market, you need to do them entirely through software. And that doesn't mean you don't have, you know, humans to help people answer questions if they have, you know, product support questions and that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean like you don't have humans working at the company to build the software. Like we're not getting rid of humans. Um, but I think for for kind of a scalable mass market financial services firm, like the products have to be software driven. Um, and that was a realization we came to at Grove that was rather tough because, you know, we had a team of financial advisors and the, the unit economics of the business just weren't working. And uh, it was really tough to acquire customers for a reasonable enough cost, you know, and make that work with, you know, the cost of serving them with, with human financial planners. And so we've kind of independently made the decision that long term, you know, it might not make sense to leverage humans as much. And, and maybe we need to find new ways to, you know, not have them spend, you know, many hours a year with a client, but maybe a couple hours a year or even less. And, and the Wealthfront opportunity came up around the same time. And it, it kind of seemed like we, we kind of had similar outlooks on what the world would be. And they had just kind of done a lot of the automation stuff already. And, and what did you learn about uh, acquiring customers in the sense of what got them really excited to, to have a financial advisor or think more about their financial planning in a, in a real way? How were they you know, rational or irrational uh, about that in terms of what, what got them to uh, hooked or, or and what kept, what kept them staying? I wish I could tell you that I learned a way to do it affordably uh, <laughs> at Grove. It was, it did, that was not the case. Um, what one thing that I thought was really fascinating that I think led us to believe something about the market that maybe wasn't correct was when we first launched, we had so much co- demand for the service that we couldn't service everyone. And we were small. We only had a couple financial planners. So we're not talking about you know, millions of people. We were talking about hundreds of people. And so we had to create this waiting list. And we said, hey, if you want to sign up, put your name on this list, put down $50, we'll hold your place in line, you'll lock in our current pricing, and we'll service you as soon as we can. And then we went out, we hired all these financial planners, and we went back and we said, hey, do you want to sign up? And people would say, not right now. And we'd be like, oh, we're really sorry. Do you want your $50 back? And they'd be like, no. Like, I want to do this eventually. So the interesting thing we learned is that financial planning is something on everyone's to-do list. It's just not at the top. You know, the, it's really hard to prioritize something today that's primary benefits is 30, 40 years from now. So as much as everyone, you know, that we talked to found it compelling and important enough that they wanted to put their name on the list, but not compelling and important enough to like, you know, take action, but also not unimportant enough that they wanted to get their money back. It kind of was this interesting learning that, you really have to make it easier to do. And so the way that at Grove, we thought in the future, we could have made it easy, which we're now doing at Wealthfront, is start with a product that provides really immediate value, right? A bank account that, uh, you know, or, a, or a, a cash account that pays interest. That's a product someone could offer that adds value today, right? The average Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America accounts earn almost nothing, like 0.0 something percent interest. And so offering them a way that they could start earning more on their cash right away is something that gets them in the door. Help them summarize their net worth, help them track their savings and spending. Something that like matters today and helps impact them in the next 30 days, give them a, a more affordable place to invest their money. 
And then as you build a suite of products that are really compelling and valuable to clients and customers, then you can start to say, hey, we, we've actually noticed all this stuff. We can like dole out the financial planning advice piece by piece as it's relevant to different things in their lives. And now all of a sudden they get a lot of that benefit, but they don't have to do this big upfront work that kind of a traditional financial planning process takes. And, and it makes it easier to get started, um, you know, easier to build that relationship because you've built it through products that have more immediate value. And so I think at Grove, we, we thought that's what we need to do. We need to go build another product that will provide immediate value to customers so that maybe in two or three years, we can start taking everything we learned about how to help them plan for the future and really deliver compelling long-term benefit to their lives. You know, we, then we I talked to Andy, the CEO of Wealthfront. And he said, well, we have this cash account. It's something that people come in the door for and sign up. And we have this planning engine, but now we need to figure out how to turn that into the advice we give people and how do we automate that advice? And I thought, wow, this is a chance to basically do what I think Grove should do and skip three years and start on a base of a lot of people. And so, you know, it, it seemed like a great option because the, the model at Grove would have been to kind of restart and build another product. Yeah. And, and say more about what that, what that wedge was that, 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 that initial value prop that got all the people in the door at Wealthfront. At Wealthfront? Yeah. So, I mean, initially we, we had an investment account and, and that was, we charge, you know, a fraction of what other people are charging and have one of the best, if not, you know, the best forms of tax loss harvesting. So tax loss harvesting is something that, you know, will monitor when certain parts of your portfolio are down sell those pieces of your portfolio, buy something similar, but not exactly the same so that you're not unexposed to the market and allow you to capture those losses and write them off your income or write them off other gains you have in your portfolio. And so building something that could do that for you know a quarter or less than the market was charging got people in the door. Then we launched a cash account that paid higher interest than other institutions and that got people in the door. And then those things work together. So you can move your money from one to the other quickly. That was exciting. And so we, we had those things and we, we had launched free financial planning, but I think the step we hadn't yet made that, you know, I'm now working a lot on is how do you take that advice and kind of now that you have some of those products and we, we won't have every product under the sun and make it all automated. So people don't have to spend, you know, re, you know, tireless hours every week uh, trying to manage their finances. How can you put it on autopilot, if you will? And so is that sort of the, the, the name of the game is building some wedge, whether it's an investing product, savings product, a lending product by which you, you know, get customers uh, putting, you know, uh, building accounts with you and then just layering financial services uh, on top. Is that sort of the name of the game in, in FinTech? Is that what everyone's trying to do? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately as much as we might think, you know, millennials are, are not loyal to anything, they'll switch products day in and day out, like switching financial products is still a lot of work, right? You've got to go change, which, you know, all of your credit cards, the bill pays and, you know, your direct deposit, it's a lot of work. So I think, you know, people aren't just going to change for nothing. And so the name of the game is in, is like being able to provide a clear and compelling value proposition um, that is differentiated from what other people have. And, you know, historically that could be, you know, companies have to evolve. And I think the benefit uh, technology companies have is that they can evolve much faster than large financial institutions. So, you know, when Wealthfront launched a robo advice and tax loss harvesting, it was something that you know no one else was offering or very few people were. Now people have caught up, but now we've launched, you know, dozens of products since then. So, you know, we have 
so many things, you know, you just have to be one step ahead and, or five steps ahead. And in the case of the current, you know, traditional financial institutions, like their innovation cycle is different than ours. And so, but you have to have something to get people in the door and it has to have, I think, compelling value in the next 30 days. And so what is that thing? Is that something that will automatically help you find savings you didn't know you have? Is that something that'll get your paycheck two days early? Is that something that will earn you more interest? All of those things are out there. And, but you know, all those things will probably become more commoditized services over the next year or two. And so what's the next thing? And, you know, what's the next compelling thing that no one has for us, we're making a big bet that it's self-driving money and it's automating and optimizing all of your money. So you don't have to spend time doing it. And so you earn more like that's what our bet is. Other people will take different bets on what that kind of differentiated value prop will be. And, and I'm curious how you think about people who, within wealth management who are sort of innovating on, on the experience itself or the interface itself. So for example, you know, our, our good friend, Lindsay Holden at long game, uh, innovating by trying to make it you know, uh, a fun game that, that has you saving, you don't necessarily even, you know, uh, think of it of, oh, I'm financial planning right now, or people are trying to innovate different sort of interface like voice or something, or, or people who are, have the same goals as you in terms of building self-driving money, but are just going about it in a totally different product. I guess the, the question is, are you intrigued by any of those approaches or do you sort of have a request for, for experiments in, in the space in terms of, uh, op- opportunities to do it just in a totally different way? Yeah, no, I mean, I love that there is no shortage of companies trying different things. And, you know, we've really focused our product on millennials who save, right? There are non-millennials and there are millennials who don't save. And, you know, millennials who save, fortunately for our company is a very big, you know, part of the market, but there are also uh, other other large segments and all of them could probably be doing better than, uh, you know, in their financial lives. I think, you know, a quarter of people who make six figures still live paycheck to paycheck, right? Like it's, uh, you know, I think I don't know, the stats are something like 69% of people don't have a thousand dollars saved. You know, there is financial issues to tackle all over the place and for different segments of the population and different age tiers, like you're going to need totally different experiences. And, you know, I, I, I love what a lot of these other companies are doing, launching, you know, cool innovations to cool ways to save. Like, I like that. Like we need more innovation. And I think, that's what's powering, you know, people's financial outcomes getting better is is companies innovating and forcing everyone else to level up, right? I think the fact that, you know, people won't have to spend their time thinking about their money as much and it will, you know, optimize and, and earn more, like that's great. And that that innovation came from, you know, other people building some of the things we probably built 10 years ago, five years ago, and now we're going to continue to build better things and try to do it in a way that, I think puts people, do it in a way that favors people over institutions, right? Historically, the entire industry has been all about making money on the institution. It's probably why you see a lot of bank accounts pay almost no interest, right? I think the future is is an organization that favors people over institutions. And I think that's kind of a future we want to build. And what, what does that mean concretely to favor individuals over, over institutions? Or how does that manifest? Yeah, so we looked at, you know, the interest that we could offer in our capital account. And, you know, we could keep it all for ourselves or we could give back to consumers. And, you know, that was a decision that we consciously made to give back a lot more of it than others were uh, at the time, because we thought if if people do better, um, you know, we as a brand, we as a company, we as a financial institution also do better and and being transparent about it all. Right. So trying not to build a company that, you know, hides fees and, you know, you know, 
offers products that are less compelling. You know, if, if we wanted to get into the mortgage space, we probably wouldn't do it unless we could offer something that's really compelling and benefits our customers more than, you know, a, a mortgage somewhere else would. And so, so it's really important for us to be able to build and ship and deliver products that pass on that value to the customer, because I think that's what drove the company to get started in the first place was that financial institutions weren't, weren't doing that as much as we thought they could. Totally. And I, I think to the extent that the space has had, and by space, I mean, companies like Wealthfront and Betterment has had critics. I, I think one of them, uh, or what it critiques, I think one of them has been sort of that it, be, it the fear is that it becomes a commodity or, you know, fees get pushed down to zero. You know, what does that mean to margins? How, 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 how do you think about, about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think fees will, I mean, fees will go down and you've seen that in lots of industries, right? And, and right now I think they've gone down, right? The average cost used to be 1% and now, you know, lots of services, even big companies like Vanguard and Schwab are all lowering their fees. Do they ever go to down to zero? Well, you know, do you want to hire the service to manage your money that charges you nothing, right? Or do you want to hire the service to manage your money that charges you a reasonable and fair fee to, to provide a service? And so I don't know if they ever go to zero, but there is a lot of pressure. So what that pressure does is either lead companies to be frantic or innovate. And so I don't think we want to lower fees because we can't innovate. We'd rather innovate, offer the best product and kind of earn that, like earn the right to charge a fee. That, you know, like customers have all the choice in the world now. They can leave and go anywhere. And so it's our job as a company to convince them to stay by continuing to offer better experiences they can't get anywhere else. And so I think that's how you earn fees. It's not by, you know, just charging them. Let's talk about B2B for a second. You know, we were saying how people have often focused on, uh, companies have often focused on institutions instead of individuals. Uh, in terms of building big B2B companies in the space, you know, things like Adapar, um, for example, do, do you think those companies are likely to be, uh, you know, specialized, you know, go, uh, B2B from the beginning, or are they likely to be ones that start as consumer uh, and then add B2B on, or, or, over time, or serve institutions over time? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, Plaid is a good example. I think if I look back uh, at the first email uh, about Plaid from oh, many, many, many years ago when you know, they were first raising their first round, maybe we're going to build a consumer insights platform for spending data. And what are we going to do? And they realized that to collect that data, you need to build these integrations with different financial institutions. And oh, wow, everyone's going to need to do that. Let's, let's build those, those features and, and license them uh, as a service. Um, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure that at least one or two of the companies that started providing banking as a service started saying, oh, wow, if we're going to launch this, we're going to need to build all this. Oh, wow, it's really hard. Maybe we should be in the business of offering this to enable others. The cool thing is that financial services in an industry with you know, historical revenue across lots of product lines. So it supports B2B you know, even stronger because the businesses typically make money and then they can use that money to, you know, innovate and, but they can also use that money to license other services. So, you know, we don't do everything in-house at Wealthfront. We aggregate client data using a third party. We're launching services sometimes with third parties. On the flip side, sometimes there are calls uh, where building it in-house can, can just really add a tremendous amount of value. So from the brokerage side, we build our own brokerage firm, but from the linking infrastructure, we don't go build a relationship with every financial institution. We use a third party. So I think there's opportunities to, to enable companies to grow faster by focusing on one piece of the problem. I think you just need to make sure that that piece 
isn't something that is it isn't the way that companies will differentiate because they'll be forced if the if, if it's truly the differentiator it will force them to consider building it in-house talk more about the population that doesn't have uh, financial uh, advisory or financial planning uh, today. That, that's most of the world. But uh, I remember hearing some stat, maybe you told me like, uh, you know, half of the uh, U.S. doesn't have $500 in their in their bank account or, or something like that. Talk, paint a picture of the financial position of sort of the, the maybe even just U.S. Uh, that doesn't have access to this. And what, what are the biggest causes of them as we said earlier, not, not having that wealth, is it they, ne- they never got it in the first place? Or is it you know, something like student loans or, or healthcare or I don't, expenses? Or uh, how do you sort of make sense of that? I mean, all of the things you mentioned, right? The cost of education has skyrocketed. The cost of healthcare has skyrocketed. Like over the last few decades, um, it, it, there's this experience, and I think it's called Finex. I can't remember uh, where they kind of help expose people to what the financial system looks like for low to moderate income families. And so I went through this experience and it's unbelievable how predatory lending is and how difficult it is to find products and services when you don't have money. So, you know, this is, this happened uh, at a conference in Austin, not South by, um, and, you know, we basically, went around the neighborhood and we were on one of our tasks was to find a checking account that had no fees. If you didn't have a direct deposit and we couldn't find one. Right. And so things like, um, you know, chime, uh, you know, targeting a lot of people who are trying to open accounts with, you know, without monthly fees, like they really are going to make a difference for, for that segment of the population getting pays two days early was a big value prop they had early on. And it's one that, you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, having access to that capital earlier is great. One of the other, you know, challenges is borrowing, you know, loans in that segment of the population, payday lending, they're all incredibly, incredibly expensive, like, you know, hundreds of percentage points, uh, thousands of percentage points of interest for different types of loans. And there's a few companies uh, that I'm going to blank on the names of that have started like better payday lending. And they've gotten some criticism from, you know, media saying, oh, man, you're going after this predatory practice, but doing it in a way that trying to help people build credit, trying not to offer the, you know, incredibly high interest rates that other kind of payday lenders offer. I think that kind of innovation on that segment will allow people to spend less on interest, to save a little bit more, spend less on fees and get to the point that they start saving. but. It's tough. I mean, right now is going to be a really hard time. We, you know, we have 20 million plus people unemployed. Um, you know, I totally, you know, don't want to diminish the fact that like this is going to be a really big problem. And you're right. I think the stat is like 44% of people have less than um, couldn't cover a four or $500 expense without, uh, without having to borrow or sell something. And, you know, I, I I know from experience that it's very hard to even find a bank account that doesn't have fees. So we need to continue to offer products and services that, you know, make that again, go back to that point of favoring the, the, the person over the institution. Totally. How about FinTech broadly? What, what's, what's your sort of thesis? Where are you sort of excited? Let's say you were starting a fund solely focused on investing in, in FinTech startups. What would you be looking for or want to see more of? Yeah, I think I'd want to make, I want every company that I would potentially invest in to be focusing on something that is like, has a 
12 to 24 month like differentiating competitive advantage that'd be one uh, and then the reality is i would want everyone to be focused on a sustainable model for customer acquisition right like the number one thing that i think will kill fintech companies is unsustainable customer acquisition uh, it's really expensive it's really competitive a lot of incumbent firms have a lot of money uh, the cost to acquire people for banking, investing, wealth management services can be, you know, as high as thousands of dollars. Like at Grove, we were, we were, you know, some channels were over a thousand dollars to acquire a customer. Like you can't sustain that. I, like, I don't know if I'd want to be investing in companies where they had 10, 12, 15 year paybacks. Um, and so really, really coming out the gate, I talked to a lot of founders who are getting started with companies and I'm like, hey, before you build the product, go see if you can acquire customers. And they're like, well, I want to build the product first. Like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, building the product actually might be the easier challenge than finding a sustainable way to, or, or I guess, more scalable slash sustainable way to acquire those customers. So I keep telling people that are starting companies, like, before you even build the product, go build a landing page and see how much it costs you to get someone to give you an email, or see if you can get someone to pay you to get on a waiting list, or get, you know, use a third party to fulfill the product. Even if you can't build it, say sign up, let's say you want to do a, a software where you, um, you know, share all of your transactions and they build you a personalized budget. We'll get them to share their transactions and build them the budget manually with no software and see how much it costs to get someone there. I think a lot of companies will spend too much time on product in the early days before they spend enough time figuring out how to make the you know, acquisition economics work, and they will be sorely disappointed uh, when they realize how expensive it is to acquire customers and, and that their, their model, you know, unit economics don't support that. So I think that would be like my gating criteria is if someone's like not focused on that with 50% of their brain power, I'd be like a little worried. Yeah. We've been talking about sort of, you know, internet native digital, you know, wealth managers like Wealthfront Betterment. Is, is it possible that they you know, uh, the, the wealth management products that do well might actually be uh, bundlers that, that started somewhere else. So for example, could digital wallets like PayPal or, or Revolut or peer-to-peer payment services like Square Cash or even payroll services like Gusto just sort of bolt on uh, wealth management services and, and become major players? How do you think about that? The idea that it might, you know, not come from something that started as wealth management tool, but from something totally different. Yeah. I mean, one of the partnerships that I thought could have been really interesting for us at Grove was something like Gusto. Right, like the employer channel. Um, you know, we looked at partnering with companies. We gave a lot of seminars at companies, and it was really interesting because people trust their employers. That you know, you're already tied into where the money's coming from. You know, is there is there a play there? I think Guideline is a 401k provider, and like going through instead of you know trying to build payroll, they've partnered. But I could easily see a payroll company you know, acquire and, and try to launch their own 401k company. Now, I do think that the expertise in managing a 401k company is much more around compliance and regulatory, you know, compliance than it is anything close to product experience. And I think the way that you launch that kind of a company is you really understand that regulatory system better and you build software to like make the filings and the compliance easier. So I think if Gusto were to try to get into that space, like, they would either need to acquire a company doing that or they would probably struggle because it's not, you know, their core competency. But yeah, I think the proprietary distribution channel will be more important than maybe even the product. Like, you know, 
you know, or at least equally as important for companies that are trying to compete, especially in a commoditized space, right? If you can go launch something that's truly differentiating that, that other people don't have, you know, let's put that aside, right? Like I do think that if we launch something that truly makes money self-driving, like that's, that's different. But if you wanted to try to compete in the traditional, you know, banking space right now, if you could do it with a proprietary distribution channel from a company that has that, that would be really compelling. And it's what worked for, you know, companies like Schwab has these employer stock plans and they've, you know, they work with companies like Lyft. And I had a Schwab account when I worked at Google and like, they got all of the money in the door. So I think the, my bet uh, and a company that I talked to when I was at Grove that I thought is poised pretty well to get into the wealth management space that no one really talks about it is Carta. Uh, you know, Carta has an incredibly large amount of assets under management. They just happen to all be illiquid private company stock, right? If Carta, instead of handing off the private stock to someone like Schwab when a company goes public, could build their own brokerage firm and carry that in-house, they would bring all those assets over and those assets will inevitably be sold and people want to do something with those sold assets. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's an opportunity. It's probably why Morgan Stanley acquired Solium, which is a Carta competitor, uh, because now they can manage and advise on those private assets. And, you know, when you advise on things, you charge fees. Paint more of a world for what self-driving money uh, could could look, could look like, uh, and, and or, or what we need to do to to get there, or or some angle related self driving money that we we haven't yet gotten into uh, in in this podcast as, as much as we should. Yeah, I mean, just think right now, you you get a paycheck and and that gets deposited, and some months you take a vacation, not these months, and, and you know some months your spending goes up because it's Christmas and you know you buy lots of gifts or you know whatever holiday it is, and then you know so imagine if your financial institution could kind of see that in advance, whether it's through syncing with your credit card company or, or seeing your trends and know that, you know, in December, we should leave a little bit of extra cash or not, but making sure that all of the money that you don't need for spending and you don't need for an emergency fund or something is set aside as quickly as possible and, and you know, put to work. And then imagine things like your mortgage, uh, you know, your financial institution is just constantly monitoring you know, interest rates and say, oh, it's time to refinance. Let's automatically do that for you. Or the same thing for your student loans. Imagine if, you know, all of a sudden we see that, you know, you had an unexpected expense and it exceeded your emergency fund. And instead of letting your account overdraft or instead of letting, uh, you know, having to sell your portfolio, you could borrow against that portfolio and automatically. And so imagine if, you know, you'd automatically take a line of credit against your portfolio to avoid fees or avoid costly, you know, capital gains. And it could kind of just all work and, you know, you could control it all and you could give it the inputs and it'd be based off the goals you have, but you don't have to think about it. And, and it all just happens. And like, it's something that I want for myself. So it makes it really easy to spend like days and nights building it. And I think hopefully you'll see the first pieces of it come out this year and it'll just get better from there. That's a perfect place to to wrap. For those who enjoyed listening to our conversation, w- want to learn more, uh, what what uh, where can you point them to, or or what Wealthfront plug uh, can you can you offer? Yeah, I mean Wealthfront.com, easy, find it, check it out. Uh, me, I'm I'm just at Hutchins on Twitter, um, or you can just search my name, and usually comes up. Awesome. Um, I guess today has been Chris Hutchins uh, at Wealthfront. Uh, Chris, it's been a fantastic episode. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.